Each year, 1.5 million Americans experience homelessness with its attendant health risks for at least part of the year. New York State recently decided to address housing needs as a social determinant of health by providing supportive housing to homeless Medicaid beneficiaries in an effort to reduce downstream health care costs. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Nirav Shah, the New York State Commissioner of Health. Dr. Shah has co-authored a perspective article on New York's experiment with housing as health care. Dr. Shah, can you start by describing the current state of health and health care and the costs for people who are homeless or are unstably housed? What situation motivated New York State to take this action? Well, thank you, Stephen. Certainly, research shows that people who are homeless have worse health than people who are not homeless. They often have multiple chronic medical conditions and difficulty controlling those medical problems when homeless. They have high levels of behavioral health problems, including substance abuse and mental illness. They face many environmental risks from being homeless and are frequently the victims of crime. The net sum of all of these factors is that people who are homeless have mortality rates more than two to three times higher than people who are not homeless. And the homeless population is also aging, which is adding to their rates of morbidity and disability. The poor health and high mortality rates of homeless people ironically occurs despite the fact that they use more health care services than other people. Many studies have shown that people who are homeless tend to have higher rates of emergency department visits, costly inpatient hospitalizations, and other problems associated with high use of health care when compared to people who are low income but not homeless. Homeless are among the 550 problem, the 5% of patients who account for 50% of health care costs. We did a preliminary analysis in New York looking at 28,724 Medicaid recipients who were in need of supportive housing, including people who were literally homeless on the streets or in shelters, and also people who were boarding in nursing homes just because they did not have homes to return to in the community, and found that for these patients, they had a total of over $1 billion in annual Medicaid expenditures. The math seemed pretty clear that supportive housing would be a good investment. Supportive housing costs about $50 to $70 per day versus $222 for an emergency department visit, $217 per day for a nursing facility, $850 per day for drug or alcohol detox services, and $2,200 per day for inpatient medical hospitalization. So what exactly is supportive housing? Is there staffing involved? And then in the end, what is the evidence that it's effective as relates to better health? Supportive housing is independent permanent housing. Tenants have leases and they pay about a third of their income in rent. And it's housing that's linked easily to person-centered services aimed at keeping tenants housed. That means helping those living with mental illness, addiction, HIV AIDS, and other complex problems manage their illness and improve their quality of life and health. The housing in this system is high quality and the services are voluntary. The staffing varies according to the needs of the tenant, but generally case managers have caseloads of 20. In a single site, also called congregate models, there's 24-7 front desk coverage and other on-site services, including recreational, part-time psychiatric, and often additional support services, including employment assistance. The effectiveness is clear, with more than 20 studies showing that supportive housing can lead to reductions of hospital-based health services, non-health care services such as jail stays, lower health care costs, and improvements in health. 
Some of the best studies of note are those done by Laura Sandowski and colleagues published in 2009 in JAMA, where a randomized controlled trial of supportive housing for people with chronic medical problems showed reduced inpatient hospitalizations and emergency department visits. A cost-effectiveness analysis by Anirabhan Basu, published in Health Services Research in 2012, showed reductions in health care costs for the group placed in supportive housing. And also, among the subgroup of patients who were HIV positive, patients were more likely to survive with undetectable viral load and intact immunity when placed in supportive housing. There's other research showing that housing people with HIV reduces HIV risk behaviors and improves HIV outcomes as well. Mary Larimer and colleagues published in 2009 a quasi-experimental trial of supportive housing for homeless people with severe alcohol problems that showed that patients placed in housing had lower future hospital use and lower Medicaid costs relative to controls. So what does New York's current plan look like, and how do homeless people qualify to participate in it? So we're very transparent in New York about our plan, and all of the details are publicly available online through our New York State Medicaid Redesign Team website. In brief, we have two broad buckets of funding for supportive housing. The first is for capital and operations funding to build and sustain new units of supportive housing. And the second is rental and service subsidies to be used for scattered site housing, renting existing units of housing and providing an overlay of support services. In New York, multiple state agencies are administering the program's rental and service subsidies, including the Office of Mental Health, the Office of Alcoholism and Substance Abuse Services, the AIDS Institute, and others. And the types of subsidies provided by each agency and the exact mechanism of targeting eligible Medicaid recipients differs somewhat for each agency and population to best meet the unique needs of each specific subpopulation. In general, so the supportive housing is being targeted to Medicaid recipients who are enrolled in or are eligible for health homes. The health homes are a part of the Affordable Care Act. It's a model of care for people who are part of that 550 problem, patients who are medically complex and are also high cost to Medicaid. In a health home, the care is overseen by a care coordinator who makes sure the care is integrated and that social as well as medical needs are addressed. New York applied for a Medicaid Research and Demonstration Project waiver that included a request to reinvest $750 million in Medicaid savings over five years to expand the supportive housing project, including through capital funding, the argument being that Medicaid already pays for housing in the form of nursing homes and that it would be more cost-effective to move to supportive housing. That request was denied. Why do you think that was? Well, we're in negotiations with CMS, and currently the plan is back on the table. We're looking to fund supportive housing through the Delivery System Reform Incentive Payment, which will require the funding to be tied to very specific outcome measures, such as reduced hospitalization. If that federal money doesn't come through, how big a dent do you think New York State alone can make in the problem of homelessness? It's very clear that the lack of appropriate supportive housing, especially in New York's urban areas, is a major driver of unnecessary Medicaid spending. We know that for every individual served under this program, Medicaid costs will be saved depending on the type of population and the disabilities served and the intensity of the targeting. Overall, though, the housing and subsidies provided for supportive housing through Medicaid are very important. And unless we get that $750 million from federal share, we will make a very small dent in the homelessness problem in New York. 
Today, there are more than 77,000 people, including single adults and also families and children, homeless in New York at any given point in time. Note that this number is from the 2013 point-in-time count, which counts homeless people on a single night in January. It does not include people unstably housed or in nursing homes. So overall, the work that we're doing with Medicaid, which will touch about 4,500 New Yorkers in our first year's budget, which is critically important, still represents a very small amount of the total funding needed for homelessness in New York State. New York is undertaking an experiment here. What kind of research is going to be part of it, and, and what kind of outcomes are you going to be looking at? We're very lucky in the New York State Department of Health to have a very strong data mining tool uh, with a contractor that uses very sophisticated software to track and monitor Medicaid savings and Medicaid utilization patterns for enrollees receiving supportive housing services. We're going to be looking at things like emergency department visits, inpatient hospitalizations, how many days each year people are spending in the hospital, in outpatient settings, in specialty care, uh, obtaining behavioral health services, and then ultimately the total cost to Medicaid when given supportive housing versus not. We'll also track pre- and post-Medicaid costs. We will uh, analyze cost avoidance and savings associated with placement into supportive housing. Finally, are there other social determinants of health besides secure housing that you think a publicly funded health care program should be addressing this way? Absolutely. There are many other social factors that profoundly impact health and consequent health costs and thus are potential areas of future focus for publicly funded health care programs. In New York, we started with supportive housing because there is clear evidence to support its efficacy in improving health and reducing health care costs, and because we could see in our Medicaid data that there was a very specifically defined subset of homeless people who cost a great deal of money to Medicaid and were suffering from poor outcomes. Some of the other social determinants of health that we need to prioritize depend on local conditions and community needs. So, for example, we know that addressing food insecurity and access to healthy food, making sure that people have safe places to walk and exercise, preventing obesity, diabetes, and heart disease, using all of these opportunities, reducing neighborhood crime and violence, all have large health consequences. Overall, in the U.S., we see that large disparities in health are tied more to a person's zip code than to their genetic code. And these health disparities are much larger than in other countries where more spending is spent on the social determinants of health relative to the healthcare delivery system. Thank you, Dr. Shah.